Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, December 5th starts now. On today's program, making his triumphant return, formerly the co-host of First Tuesdays and my favorite block club reporter, Mick Dumpke. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, what Ben Jarofsky's reading list looks like, you want to check out ChicagoReader.com because all that is there and more. And Ben Jarofsky's got his own little corner of the website. Head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. I'll spell it for you. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling Hold Those Tents Tuesday, and here's why. The tents in question are the ones that the city of Chicago under the leadership of Mayor Brandon Johnson were intending to build, what was it, 38th in California? I think that's the general address. I'm doing this off the top of my head, which is always a dangerous thing to do in Brighton Park. It's been the source of much, what, controversy, tension, yelling, screaming. Uh, There's definitely a vocal group of people in the area who don't want the migrants coming in, don't want the tents coming in. Uh, and, uh, which, you know, I find I, that puts me off a little bit because I welcome the migrants to Chicago and don't understand the exaggerated concerns that said, that said, uh, this particular site, uh, was a former, I think it's some kind of construction zone and there's toxins in the soil. It's vacant land. There's toxins in the soil. There's chemicals in the soil. The city of Chicago conducted a study, uh, lat which they released last Friday. Mick Dumke's sitting by. We can talk about the release of the study, what they put reporters through before they gave them the study. It's so weird. Transparency in the city of Chicago. But they released the study, and the study showed, I have, I'm going to read the quote, what uh, the study showed. This is the, um, the city of Chicago's own study, okay? City officials, I'm reading uh, from Cranes, shout out Justin Lawrence. City officials released an 800-page environmental report conducted by a third party late Friday evening after construction at the site had already begun. The report showed that the site contained mercury, arsenic, lead, and manganese at levels requiring cleanup. Despite the concerns, the report said the site was still suitable for temporary residential use. Huh? Who wants to live on that stuff? Who? Who who came to that conclusion? Was what environmentalist? You got Rachel Carson at City Hall suddenly saying it's okay to pollute waterways. And and I gotta say this, it's very frustrating for me as an old lefty. The movement that launched Brandon Johnson, that got Brandon Johnson elected, was in part rooted in an environmental justice effort. 
particularly concentrated on the southeast side of Chicago. Mick Dumkey knows what I'm talking about. Where they moved the city and its infinite wisdom moved General Dynamics crushing facility to the southeast side, causing a mini uprising in that neck of the woods where folks said there's too much pollution in here already. This is becoming a waste dump for uh, the city. And we all know they moved General Dynamics, uh, excuse me, General Irons from the north side to the south side to clear the north side's uh, area for upscale development. So pretty much every lefty I know was absolutely opposed to that. They were outraged by it. There was hunger strikes. And now here we are, fast forward. The mayor who is ushered into office by that movement is saying, don't worry about the lead, the the poisons, the toxins in the soil. Let's just build our tents here. First of all, we shouldn't even be building tents. We should be building housing. Vic, don't get me started. I was going to be cool and calm, but I just, I find this so frustrating on so many different levels. I mean, any way you look at it, I find it frustrating. And then the, like, so Pritzker, J.B. Pritzker steps in, the state of Illinois, which is essentially uh, overseeing this project, says, no, we're not going to build this until more study is done. So now you have this, like, now the media story of the day is the fight. Pritzker versus Johnson details at six. That Now that becomes a personality feud between Brandon Johnson and J.B. Pritzker, who should be allies, who should be united on this issue. And... uh I know I'm, I'm, I got some lefty friends out there. You guys are going to be giving me grief. Ben, you're too hard on Brandon Johnson. Ben, go easier on Brandon Johnson. I'm sorry, guys. I'd be saying this if it was Rahm Emanuel, Lori Lightfoot, or Richie Daly doing this. I mean, where's the oversight? Where's the thought? Where's just the, like, the, the common sense? Ten cities, terrible idea to begin with, but to put it on the land that your own report says is poisonous, Makes no freaking sense at all. So I'm glad they're halting it for the moment to do further study. And maybe they could take the time to come up with a plan for, I don't know, more adequate housing. And put Chicagoans to work, particularly black Chicagoans to work, building it. There, getting off my soapbox, bringing on my dear friend Mick Dumkey. Uh, it's Mick Dumkey Day in the Ben Jarofsky universe. He's on my show He'll be with me and Maya tonight at First Tuesday, reminiscing about First Tuesday. God bless you, Mick Dumkey. I don't know. I just told you before the show, without you and your wife, Ramada, I don't know what I would do with this podcast. So thank you very much. We're happy to be here, Ben, uh, every time. So, no, glad glad to be on once again and uh, share your frustration, as yeah. I know many people in the city do right now. And something you should know about Mick Dumkey, if you may have forgotten. Uh, back in the day at the reader, he was sort of our environmental reporter. He did the big story on blue bags, which I didn't hear any lefty complaining when McDumkey wrote that story, chastising Mayor Daly uh, for the, the absolutely ridiculous recycling program that he engineered at the time, the blue bag program. We, we don't need to relitigate that one. But don't uh, worry, Ben. We're recycling. Our recycling program is great now, just humming along all these years later. I mean, no, I listen. Those things, it's like, I don't know if it's quite, it's not on the level of you and TIFFs, but I have written probably tens of thousands of words about the failure to have a recycling program in Chicago because that should be low hanging fruit of all of our 
deep rooted environmental problems like recycling our waste, reducing the amount we're spending to send garbage to landfills should be, that should be one of the easy tasks. And we still, all these years later, haven't figured that out. I mean, it's almost 20 years after I wrote that blue bag story and we still, it's a mess, but that's not what you brought me on to talk about today. We have other more pressing messes, more newsy messes, I guess, to talk about. Uh, right. Uh, all right. So before we get to your latest CHA investigation, which was st- the, the main reason I wanted you to come on, this other story broke and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, Mick's so cool and calm when he does media presentations, like if you hear him on my show or Be Easy or what have you. Get Mick Dumkey talking about the time he was swimming in Lake Michigan and, and he brushed up against a plastic bag. If you really want, remember that, Mick? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, it's happened several times, and it infuriates me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, I mean, listen, uh, my the my aforementioned wife, Romana, anytime someone refers to my even-keeled disposition, just about chokes on her food, because <laughs> there is a side of me that's even-keeled, and then there's a probably a much larger side that is is not so much no. so yeah i mean listen the environmental stuff really is an issue that uh we have so many different related environmental issues and it really does get me very upset and so this story about the brighton park encampment site and the environmental assessments essentially being blown off initially by mayor johnson's team and and then Pritzker um, using that as an opportunity. I'm not questioning that he wasn't, cons- you know, I'm not questioning his concern about the environment, but I also read it, Ben, as, uh, as an opportunity for Pritzker to swoop in and basically, you know, kill this encampment plan, which was plagued by all kinds of controversies, questions, and problems really from the beginning. So to me, it looks like Pritzker finding a reason to stop it at this late hour, as much as the environmental concerns are are at the forefront. As yeah. Well. So that, that that story touches on all this stuff. It touches mm-hmm. on so many issues. We've been talking about housing, environment, and you know the the frustrating state of uh, of our le- government, political and government leadership uh, locally as well as nationally right now. It touches on all these things. So when you look at situation that went down uh the, the way the world was before pritzker stepped in swooped in as you said uh to put an end to this uh, project where the city released a report that as i read from justin lawrence's article and block club had the article as well so you go read block club too I'm not showing favoritism to cranes which is a joke me showing favoritism to cranes um but when the city releases this report showing the toxic contamination of that site and Mayor Johnson's administration says, we're plowing ahead anyway. What do you make of that? Like, what do you think's going on there where they say they're going to plow ahead, even though their own report shows that the area, there's serious concerns about contamination? Well, let me be as fair as possible to the mayor and his team. I think um, based on this chain of events with the Brighton Park encampment site, as well as other reporting I and and colleagues have done on city's response to the migrant arrivals. 
I think the city's scrambling. I think they're looking for answers. I think that they are grasping for solutions. And, you know, the encampment was an idea, I believe, borrowed from New York City. And uh, that was going to be one of their solutions to try to getting out of police, people out of police stations and the airports, which is also an untenable, uh, just awful, quick fix solution that we haven't moved on from in a calendar year, basically. And so I think they were trying to address that. They're trying to address the fears of people sleeping in unheated tents on their own during the winter. And the fact that uh, the brick and mortar shelters are very, very expensive um, from the city, from what we know, the little we know of what's been released on that front. So I think for all those reasons, Ben, they were looking for other answers. And this is something that uh, you, me, many other people were very skeptical, very concerned about. Uh, but from what I could tell, the mayor's office was going to go through with it because they thought it was the best of a series of bad options. I think that's the fairest take that we can have on, on the whole series of events that's led up to now. Um, but it definitely looks like it looks callous. It looks, uh, you know, like we were saying earlier, it looks like, you know, the city uh, didn't read its own homework assignment. The city didn't read its own homework assignment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or the city didn't like the report that its scientists released. So it gave it like an incomplete and then just moved on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. An 800 page environmental report. And the response is kind of like, well, we went out there and shoveled some dirt and we think it's okay. I mean, I'm laughing, not because it's truly funny, but just because it just, it strikes all of us as really absurd. Yeah. And, and I'm saying this, like, I, I really feel for the people working hard in Brandon Johnson's administration to try to um, provide for the people who've come up from the Southern border while, um, you know, resisting uh, political attacks from some of their critics. I mean, they're, they're, I do believe they've tried to do the right thing, but that doesn't mean that it's been managed terribly well. That's putting it mildly. Uh, and I, I, I know, I know that if the mayor were named Lightfoot or Rom, there would be an outcry uh, across the city. There's many outcry right now, Mick. And, you know, I struggle with this because I don't know how deep and sincere the city of Chicago is when it comes to environmental issues. Uh, and this, or to housing issues, which we'll get to with the CHA story. So, like I said, you've been covering, going back to the daily years, like, like this is supposedly a democratic city. This is supposedly at very least a liberal city uh, and uh, a city wh whose people believe in the doing what you can to protect the environment from uh, climate change and the destruction man wreaks on, wrecks on everything. But Mick, I, when I see things like this, when I see things like what previous administrations did, moving uh, General Iron down to the southeast side without much thought about it, clearing the north side uh, for upscale development, when I when I see the blue bag program, when I see when when I see your mention about how we have a uh, a weak recycling program in general, I come away 
with this sort of feeling that nobody really cares in the city of Chicago. Uh, am I being too jaded, Mick? Am I too cynical uh, for having been in this city for too long? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, ladies uh, and gentlemen. No, you're not. I mean, the only thing you can say is I do think a lot of people care, but is it a top priority? Is it a pressing issue uh, for clearly for most people in power? It's like way down the list. Yeah. They may say they care. They may actually care. But it just seems like around here, there's always something. There's always so many other things that take precedence, including, you know, the ongoing tension between um, endemic poverty and uh, and, and a struggling or, or self-declared struggling uh, business community. I mean, it's like we need a prosperous economy for people to work, but, you know, there's a lot of people who are shut out of housing. There are a lot of people who are living in tents who are not migrants, right? And I know we're going to get to housing in a second, but all these issues are interrelated, Ben. And I just think that we tend to our leadership and a lot of us, even as citizens, as voters, we tend to think of them as these isolated issues and we can only handle one at a time. And we don't even handle them well when we're doing it one at a time. So let's create more jobs. Let's raise wages for people. Those are noble goals. But like, meanwhile, you know, the pollution continues. Our, our uh, uh, you know, problems with um, and this is like what we're talking about in this particular site is is kind of like legacy pollution, yeah. legacy waste. You know, these are from, I think, like a smelting operation and an underground storage tank from years ago. The site's been vacant for some time, but this stuff has just been sitting there this whole time. It should have been cleaned up for the benefit of the citizens in Brighton Park long before there was a proposal for an encampment there, Right. And the fact that it wasn't ever addressed and um, someone's just, you know, been living next to this toxic land uh, that the people haven't been talking about until this political moment. I mean, that's an, an example of, of our problems here. That site could have been converted for new business, for new housing, um, could have been cleaned up a long time ago and put back to productive use. But it's not until we faced this uh, um I know you are don't buy that we're in a crisis, but you know the migrant arrivals, and uh, we're like scrambling as a city. Our leaders are scrambling that all of a sudden we look at this lot as a potential answer and realize, oh, it touches on all these other issues we yeah. haven't we haven't addressed. You know, absolutely. I'll get off my soapbox, but it's like it's so frustrating because one thing is tied to the other. So absolutely, it gets okay. frustrating, and you start howling at the moon after a while. Totally. And and uh, and when you went on that riff, which is a very good one about how they should have cleaned it up anyway, okay, you know what I mean, and not just dump some gravel on there. Oh, that takes care of that. Yeah, uh, there, keep walking by. I but don't think there's any level of mercury that is safe for humans, you know, to like get mercury gets in your bloodstream and it's like extremely dangerous. And there's no level that's safe, and that's like one of the pollutants there. And we could go on and on, but it's no, just an it, example of all this stuff, you know. And I'm just going to take this opportunity to get back on my soapbox on another issue. It's this when you were going on that riff about that lot in Brighton Park, all I was thinking about was this the abandoned steel mill on the south side where I've been pushing for the city. If you're going to finance a bear stadium, put it there because that would force you to do remediation. And it's like when you, 
You should have done the remediation 30 freaking years ago for the people who live on the Southeast side. But if it's going to take a bare stadium to get you to clean up what you should have cleaned up 30 years, let the bears go there and just by the way, bears just don't fire the offensive coordinator (laughs) and keep Justin Fields. All right. All right. I'm sorry, Nick. I had to say that Uh, (laughs) while we're talking about while we're talking. All right, well, let's move on uh, to another uh, example of dysfunction in the city of Chicago. The CHA, great investigative work uh, by Mick Dumkey and Rachel Hinton. And you give credit to a couple other reporters. I don't have it in front of me, uh, by the way. Uh, so you can do that uh, as well, because I want everybody to get the credit they deserve uh, on a block club investigation. Uh, they brought Mick Dumkey over there to, to uh, lead up the investigations, and they're not messing around. Mick, this was uh, really stalwart reporting, in my humble opinion, uh, about the CHA's inability uh, to fix to fix up property. This is in the so-called crisis. Okay, I'm using the language of the city of Chicago. We're facing a housing crisis. We still don't have a housing commissioner in the midst of a housing crisis, uh, and the CHA. And let me just tell everybody the H in CHA is housing. Okay. <laughs> Just helping you out there, Chicago. I know you're a little slow on the uptake a lot. Uh, somehow or other, they've been sitting on, I forget what, how many hundreds of uh, rundown units without fixing them up. Take it away and uh, and explain what you guys revealed in your story. Yeah, you you uh, hit the high points. I mean, um, this is a, an effort with uh, between Block Club and the Illinois Answers Project. Um, otherwise, or previously known as the Better Government Association, and uh, myself, my colleague, Rachel Hinton, and uh, two, uh, Emmeline Posner from uh, Illinois Answers Project, and Jennifer Bamberg, who is um, his, his freelance for us and other people. Uh, just some great reporters I got to work with, Ben. And we spent months uh, looking at the CHA's, what's known as the Scattered Site Program. When people think of the CHA, they think um, back to the old days often of the the old high-rise concentrated developments like the Robert Taylor Homes and Cabrini Green. Those have uh, all been torn down by now during what was called the plan for transformation over the last two decades. You and I have talked about the uh, so many unfulfilled promises of the plan for transformation uh, we've discussed it on previous shows, previous reporting that I and others have done. But the scattered sites are supposed to be something different. They are kind of what they sound like. These were supposed to be non-concentrated uh, public housing uh, units, apartments, and uh, traditional kind of self-standing homes um, that were literally scattered in neighborhoods around the city. The idea was to kind of desegregate public housing. The idea was that uh, these homes were going to be built in um, in racially diverse neighborhoods around the city. And there's a long and fascinating history to this program. We won't get into all of it right now because it's a kind of a tangent. But the bottom line is this is supposed to be real housing that not only puts a roof over people's heads, but provides them with access and opportunity to uh, to schools of their, you know, that they want to send their kids to, to potentially to jobs that they wouldn't have gotten if they were clustered in, you know, high poverty areas, high poverty housing. So this was really supposed to be a bright spot. It's always been one of the most in demand 
forms of housing that the CHA provides. Well, fast forward to 2023, and there are about a 2,900 scattered site homes in total that the CHA has, and one in six of them is sitting empty. So that adds up to about 500 units um, of housing around the city. Again, apartments and some uh, like single family homes all over the city. These are sitting empty, which is, you know, we have so many different kinds of a housing, so many different aspects of the housing crisis we're in, ranging from, you know, people camped out under viaducts and in parks to obviously the struggle to find housing for migrants that we just were talking about to just, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people and families struggling to pay rent or find an apartment they can afford in the marketplace. And this is literally what the CHA exists for, to try to help people who have a hard time finding decent market rate housing, to try to help them find housing that they can afford. And just so people know, most residents in Chicago Housing Authority homes are employed and or paying a share of their rent. Their rent is just prorated based on their income. So it's really a subsidy. Um, in case that's important to you, I know a lot of you know political conservatives are, have been down on public housing. There's a whole narrative that it was a failure. Well, the way it was managed, the way it was done was a failure in Chicago and other places, but people still need housing and that's what the CHA exists for. So long story short, we spent months as a team um, going all over the city, looking at these units, vacant units, occupied units, talking to residents, talking to neighbors. And we just found some astounding things in addition to the missed opportunity, uh, you know, that the CHA could be using these homes to give people shelter, to give people solid quality places to live. Um, a lot of the houses have been vacant so long, they become blights on the block or in the neighborhood. We talked to neighbors um, and, and saw with our own eyes uh, properties where that had become basically a base for, um, you know, open air drug use in the middle of the day. We uh, um, talked to places where, you know, dealers uh, had basically set up shop um, in my the most entertaining in sort of, again, a, a dark humor kind of way was a house on the Northwest side that had been taken over by raccoons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my favorite line out of anything we, we found in our reporting was from a, uh, a three, one, one call log um, where someone had called to complain about the raccoon infestation on their block in this CHA property. And the report was that the raccoons had apparently entered the house through the sliding glass door. <laughs> and I just found that hilarious. I don't know that the raccoons were literally standing up and sliding the door open and walking in, but that was kind of the image that it presented. And if that doesn't explain a problem with the use of your housing resources, I don't know what does. Uh, that is, yeah, no, it's funny. It's like a Coen brother movie. Uh, the outline of a Coen brother movie where the, the city's official reports as a raccoon entered through the sliding door. All right. So I know there's no, I know there's no serviceable response to the question I'm going to ask. I realize that before I ask it, there's no like logical 
you, you know what I mean? There's no justifiable answer to this, but I feel compelled to ask it anyway. And in, that is the why question. So again, it's called the Chicago Housing Authority. I'll just remind you that, listeners. Housing, as in the, the things you live in. Uh, and it's funded to the tune of millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, a mixture, mostly federal money, right, Mick? Mostly That's federal right. money. Yeah. Uh, and uh, dedicated to the notion uh, that a civilized city in the 21st century, like Chicago, would do whatever it can to provide housing for its residents. So they're not living under bridges or in airport terminals or police stations, et cetera. So here you have an opportunity to do something about it. Colossal failure. Why? Well, I'll tell you what the CHA said. Um, they had a series of explanations. I mean, they, they admitted that it's a problem. So that was the first thing. They did not deny it. The data comes from them. There was no way they could say this isn't true. Uh, so to their credit, I suppose, they acknowledged it. They said they were coming up with a plan to address the problems. They actually announced the plan even before we published the story. How about that, Ben? We have an impact, we'll get a, to response, <laughs> a response from our story even before it's published, just from us asking questions. Um, but, you know, the things they said are that it costs more to maintain these properties because they're not concentrated. So the per unit cost of maintenance and management is higher. I think that's probably true. It doesn't explain why they're sitting on them. Uh, they've had a lot of turnover. They the CHA, almost all the CH, all the CHA's properties at this point, 100% are privately managed. So they outsource the day-to-day -day management of their properties. And they've had a lot of turnover. They have a lot of problems getting quality management at these and other properties. So that's a big issue. Um, at the end of the day, though, I just it's like a will issue. Why aren't you taking care of these properties? Why haven't you, you know, prioritized this? Um, the CHA always, I, I understand that they probably don't get as much funding as they need to do everything they should with their properties and uh, let alone to expand, you know, the number of, of uh, housing, the amount of housing options they have. They should be expanding. That's a demand around the city and from the city council. They don't have enough money to do everything they should do. I mean, I think that's probably true. But I also think, you know, this is a classic example of mismanagement. Some of these properties, Ben, you can expect that while people are moving in and moving out, there's going to be a little transition. Properties wear down. Sometimes the property's offline, not rented out because you need to fix it up. That should take a few weeks, maybe a few months. Some of these properties, though, have been out of commission, unrented for as long as 15 years. That's just a management problem. If you're not going to rent it out, if you're not going to fix it up, make it livable and get someone in there, a family that needs it, you should sell the property. And they haven't done it. So at what point, and I know this is a challenging question, uh, but at what point do you think profit motive uh, plays a role in this and by that i mean the for-profit housing market uh is essentially like i don't hear problems like this in the for-profit world you follow what i'm saying so at some point it's in the best 
interests of the people who control the housing, own the housing, manage the housing, to take care of housing that's like for upscale people or at the very least middle class people. And I struggle with this in a capitalist society. At, at what point do we reach, do we have to get to before it's like considered in the best interest of the people who control the property to take care of it well? Well, that's a good question. I don't know that I have an adequate answer for it, uh, to be honest. What I will say is that, um, you know, the history of this country, probably the history of the world, uh, you know, the capitalist marketplace has never adequately provided enough housing for everyone, every one of our citizens. It just never has. And that's why, you know, you saw the rise of public housing in the early earlier part of the of the 1900s. Um, in Chicago, this was, uh, you know, one of the first and, and biggest local housing authorities. And the first public housing here was built in what, the 1930s, I think. And, um, and then, you know, during the depression years and the post-war years, uh, public housing construction accelerated because obviously depression, people were down on their luck, a lot of people facing hardship. And then after uh, the world wars, a lot of returning uh, veterans needed places to live. So there were public housing developments built initially for veterans. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, if you read about those times, there was a lot of resistance. A lot of people in this country, um, ranging from people in business to a substantial number of people in government and politics, like just never believed philosophically that the government should get involved in the housing market. They just were always opposed to it. So even at the time where there was the most momentum for building public housing and trying to assist people's housing needs, there was always tremendous resistance. And in that way, I feel like public housing has always been set up to fail mm. at a certain level. Um, and in sh Chicago, the history of, uh, you know, kind of planned failure of public housing is is very deep and very rich. And it's it's tied to all the other issues we're talking about here with uh, residential segregation, with um, environmental injustice. I mean, all these things are connected. Um, so to get back to this particular issue, though, um, you know, the CHA, I think, really finds itself at, at a crossroads where between the notoriety and or at the very least the controversy they've generated the last few years by selling off large chunks of land. Um, they have built some housing, but their, their, their pace of housing construction is glacial <laughs> and they they've been far more active and yeah. they've shown far more energy for selling off chunks of land, frankly, than for building housing. And so, you know, when you come to find out that not only the aggressive, about um, pushing their their housing expansion plans, but that they have been sitting on all these empty units. It just it's just kind of emblematic of the real questions and in, in leadership and choices they've made at the CHA. Um, and the one final thing I'll talk I'll mention about this, Ben, is that it's the cross the political cross currents you know around the country are not favorable for housing assistance or certainly mm -hmm. public housing um over the lat over my lifetime you know i'm uh, a middle-aged man and and since 
you know, the Nixon years at the very least in this country, there's been an effort to privatize public housing and to, you know, quote unquote, solve all of our housing needs through the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So the federal government has over time greatly reduced the amount of money that it provides to local uh, governments for, um, for building public housing. And so the money they do provide is largely for um, giving people housing choice vouchers or other kinds of vouchers so that they can go rent an apartment on the marketplace. There's just this thinking that the market is still going to solve the problem. And if the government steps in at all, it's going to basically be some kind of partnership with private landlords rather than supporting public housing resources. Yeah. And that, that's just a national phenomenon that's been going on for decades. And I don't think it's going to change anytime no. soon. It's been going on for your entire life. Yeah. Okay, just think about that. So that attitude is middle-aged. If you're middle-aged, that attitude is middle-aged. <laughs> Let's hope it's middle-aged because, I, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It seems pretty ensconced at this point in time. So. And, and I'll just uh, repeat the point I made earlier. There's not enough incentive. There's not enough money that uh, people in the private sector can make off of this to uh, justify them taking care of it. And so they'll just either run it inadequately and squeeze whatever they can out of it, or they'll just ignore it. Or the incentive is to sell off the land. Like when some rich guy wants it, like for instance, we talked at length at other shows about the soccer team here in Chicago that wanted the land. Uh, and so that's my read of uh, the matter, Mick. And um, again, I'll repeat, it's, it's pretty pathetic at a time where in the midst of a, and that's why I put it in quotes, Mick, housing crisis uh, that the CHA, the Chicago Housing Authority, uh, is sitting on, uh, what was it, 500 units of uh, units that, um, 500 units uh, that are uh, vacant. All right, now let's just have a moment to talk, Mick. Uh, put on your journalist hat. Uh, a little, little game that the CHA played. Um, so Mick just sort of hinted at it. He and his team have been working for months on this story. Uh, and then lo and behold, <laughs> you got to laugh, man. This city, CHA, thinks they're slick. They release their solution to the problem that no one knew about because the story, that the solution was a response to the Black Club investigation, which the Black Club had not released yet. So what do you think those little slicksters that the CHA were up to, Mick, when they announced the solution to a problem that no one knew about because your story hadn't come out yet? Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. They uh, they wanted to scoop us, Ben. They wanted to scoop our story about them. And so um, they did tell us that they're working on this initiative where suddenly they found $50 million, which is probably far less than they need, but $50 million to try to fix up and uh, return to productive use a number of these uh, empty houses that we just got done talking about. Um, and then uh, because they didn't want us to be, be breaking that news, they, they issued a press release and uh, made the CEO of the agency, Tracy Scott, available for an interview with uh, the Sun-Times, David Roeder. And you and I are fans of, of Dave's. I like him a lot. I respect him tremendously as a journalist. So this isn't about Dave or the Sun-Times. They did their job. They got offered a story that was newsworthy, and they went with it. 
And I'm not sure they even knew that we were working on anything. Even if they did, they did what they had to do. So when I say this, I, I just want to make clear that it's not, I'm not griping about another journalist reporting on the news, but you're right. This was a fast one that the CHA tried to pull to undermine us to, uh, to give the good news part of our story, the impact part of our story uh, to other journalists on the eve of us publishing this thing. They knew we'd been working on for months because we were very transparent with them along the way. We were asking them questions. We were telling them what we were finding, asking for their response. Um, we didn't operate in secrecy at all. And, um, and so this was the thanks we got. Uh, <laughs> and even though it you know, stole a small bit of our thunder, uh, you know, I don't care. That's not why we're writing the story. We're, we're trying to tell the truth. We're trying to tell the public. And if you want to see things change, even if the, the change is a result of them, uh, you know, pulling a stunt on us, okay, well, they still, all of a sudden they got $50 million that they didn't yeah. have before. So there you go. So fair enough. And uh, by the way, shout out David Roder. I uh, saw he's retiring. Uh, I forget how many years he's been in the business. Uh, and so shout out David Roder. And one day I'll tell the true story of David Roder uh, and me teaming up to save the Chicago Sun-Times and the reader. Yeah, there's a true story there, ladies and gentlemen. When they make the movie, Brad Pitt will play the role of me. And uh, I don't know, somebody will play the role of David Roder, all right? Uh, so anyway, shout out David Roder. All right. Uh, so I'm going to ask you the Maya question. Maya Duke Masafa, my partner in crime at First Tuesday. Mick used to be my partner in crime at First Tuesday. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, and we were going over uh, tonight's agenda because we're going to have a First Tuesday show featuring Mick, and we'll explain why. Uh, and um, uh, and Maya said she's struggling with this issue that uh, as an investigative a journalist, so much of the stories that she writes. And so many of the stories that her colleagues write are exposing inadequacies of government. Uh, and she sometimes thinks that she's contributing to, um, she's corroding the, uh, the public's faith in government. Mick, do you struggle with this uh, issue as well? Absolutely. I think about it a lot. Um, I think about it in a couple different levels. I think about, uh, the fact that um, our reporting and our storytelling can become very one-dimensional. And not only are we potentially like sending a message that everything is dysfunctional, um, you know, even though we're not saying that, we're zooming in on dysfunction that we think needs to be corrected because it's important to correct it. But I get how the steady steady drip, drip, dripper that can make people feel like that's all that's going on. So um, I think that's can be a problem on that level. I think it can be a problem because I think it's boring to readers. There are days that I, as a professional in this business, don't want to read the paper. And I start with the sports page because <laughs> uh, sports coverage has its own problems right now, Ben. But um, sometimes I want to break from you know, having to eat my vegetables all the time. Yeah. And I say this as a vegetarian. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I think there's that issue. I think yeah. that um, life is, life is complicated. And I think that the way um, 
news organizations have doubled down on investigative reporting, I think is very important, but I also think it's not the only kind of reporting or storytelling that's necessary. I mean, one thing I'll, you know, I'll say something about the place I work now, Block Club, that I do find refreshing is that Block Club covers a lot of a range of things mm-hmm. going on in Chicago's neighborhoods from restaurant openings to activists trying to do good to feel good features about, you know, young artists or, or even kids who are trying to make a difference. And, you know, the, the so-called bad news or the stuff that about that's problematic about things that aren't working, is just one part of our coverage. And I think that's, that's really important. I wish everyone had the resources for that broad range of coverage because I think it's really important, you yeah. know. And then the last layer is that just on a personal level, I mean, hey, I got into this, I think like you, Ben, because I wanted to be a writer. I learned to be a reporter because I wanted to be a writer. And there's, it's a big planet out there. I want to write about more than corrupt politics in Chicago even though I think that's important. It's a, it's become a specialty, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, in the sense that there's plenty of material still. Um, and I'm going to stay on that story, but I also want to write about other things and I miss writing about other things sometimes. So I feel it. I think Maya's, I think Maya's right to, to think about it for sure. Yeah. What I, do you I, think? I, I, well, uh, yeah, you pretty much summed up my thoughts on it. Uh, I feel that uh, journalists, um, well, there's a whole larger, deeper thing, but I'm going to keep it to the last point you made. I, I believe that uh, journalists should take time out from time to time and just uh, indulge themselves uh, in a story that uh, is, um, you know, not exposing some something wretched. Uh, and uh, like I used to bug you, you got to do the f- feature story about the Northwestern football coach. Remember, I used to bug you about that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but just take—I I do believe that it's like the equivalent of tenure, journalistic tenure. Just take a moment out, write about something else, you know. And and I know a lot of—I uh, well, don't know nearly as many journalists as you uh, do, make, but I'll give you an example. I bumped into last night. I'm a I'm going to expose him. Greg Pratt. It's a total coincidence. Great Greg Pratt, dear friend of the show, is coming on to promote his book in a little while. I bumped into him at a uh, at my bowling alley. Uh, he had he stumbled in. Uh, I didn't mean to make it sound like he was drunk. He just he walked in. Uh, and uh, I was talking at the bar with him, and somehow I got a conversation about pro west wrestling. Turns out Greg Pratt, Mick knows as much about pro wrestling as I know about basketball, which is an astounding revelation. <laughs> I never would in a million years have associated. And I'm like, dude, you got to be writing about pro wrestling. Totally. You, should, you know, it's like, it can't just be about the wretched behavior <laughs> of public officials. I, I do believe. So Greg Pratt, your assignment is to do a story. Uh, on wrestling, you can do whatever you want on it. Mick Dumpke, your assignment. I want to. I want a profile of the Northwestern basketball coach. Okay. All right. There we go. I'm giving out assignments. I like uh, it. I like yeah. It. All right. Uh, we will be at first Tuesday tonight. Uh, Mick, myself, uh, and Maya. 
What time do you uh, need me there, Ben, by the way? Yeah, I know. There we go. It starts at <laughs> 7. It would be nice if you get there by 6.45. In the old days when Mick and I hosted the show, there was always that perpetual fear that the guests wouldn't show up. Mick and I have been through that. That's part of the reason I think that Mick just ran screaming in the night one time. Like, I can't take it anymore. Oh, uh, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was rough. It was a rough part of the show. The shows themselves are always fun once you get yes. going. But, man lining up the guests and making sure they show up. That was a whole other issue, right? So. Yeah. And, and we'll do some reminiscing tonight. We'll talk about it because uh, we're taking a pause. Maya said it's the end of it, but I, then I was talking to Greg Pratt. And I'm like, he was like, Ben, why don't we do a first Tuesday where we promote my book and I could sell copies of my book. I go, that's a great idea. So I already ran that by Maya. And she goes, yeah, that's a great idea. So all our talk about ending first Tuesday may be premature. We may bring it back in April or May for Greg uh, and, uh, and others and other things. Every, first uh, first Tuesday special elections. Yeah. You yes. You can do that. So. Absolutely. Oh, I love the election issues. Uh, so do you have any... Um, I'm probably going to ask you this tonight. Oh, anyway, so it's at 7 o'clock. The show begins at the Nighthawk Bar over on uh, Kimball and Lawrence, ladies and gentlemen. So show up, be there, be square. Uh, your favorite first Tuesday, Mick. What's your? We did the show together for, I think, eight years? No, five years. I, I've lost track. I can't remember. Uh, we did the show from 2014 to 2019. So do you have a favorite first Tuesday of all those? Well, we were talking about this and there's a lot of them that I really liked, but I have to go with the very first one we did, uh, which featured Scott Wagaspeck, Alderman Wagaspeck, uh, then Alderman Joe Moreno and former Alderman Richard Mel. And all I can say, Ben, is that afterward, <laughs> someone who was, witnessed this discussion came up to us and said, I think Mel just said several things that are indictable. <laughs> because he was telling stories and he was um, very, he was boasting yeah. of how uh, he had mastered the patronage system, the old yeah. school patronage system. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, it was it was highly informative and entertaining. Let yeah. me tell you, it was just amazing. And Mel and I go back way, way back when I first moved to Chicago. Uh, I covered him, and he quickly came to the conclusion that nothing good could come uh, for him out of talking to me. Uh, and so he stopped talking to me, uh, returning calls, etc., and so forth. Uh, and I believe in private. Uh, quarters referred to me as something along the lines of that piece of blank. You could figure out the word. Uh, so I didn't believe that he was going to show. This is a classic Ben and Mick uh, paranoia before a show. I did not. I, I don't know if you remember this, Mick. I go, there's no way Mel's showing up. There's no way Mel's showing up. And I'd say that over as long as Scotty Wagaspack's here and Proco Joe, we're going to have a show, but there's no way Mel's showing up. But lo and behold, he not only showed up, he stole the freaking show. He it's sure something. did. He waltzed in there and uh, just yeah. started telling stories about how he loved the bridge tender jobs. Remember that? Yeah. The people who sat in the little, uh, the bridges over the Chicago river. And he said they were the best jobs because there was never any work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have to do anything. There were never any boats. 
so amazing yeah uh yeah that's a pretty good show that was our very first show ladies and gentlemen way back when in 2014 so tonight uh we'll at least uh i'm I'm not going to say close it down but we'll close down for at least a few months uh, with the show, Mick Dumpke and uh, Maya and I were reminiscing about First Tuesdays, talking politics, talking in journalism, dealing with the philosophical issue that I raised with Mick. Are, are we too corrosive, uh, the journalists in Chicago? Are, are we responsible for the the fact that the uh, public has no faith in government or is losing its faith in government? Or is it the problem of the people <laughs> that are causing people to, you know, to lose the faith, Mick. You know what I'm saying? It, you know, it's not my fault. These guys are uh, doing things like building tent cities on lots filled with mercury. You That's hear me, correct. Mick? That's correct. <laughs> but I think one thing that has started to slip away, um, and and this came up in a conversation I had over the weekend, where a couple of us were talking about the Burke trial. Oh my God. And we're asking each other, both of us were following it, but our suspicion was that a lot of people weren't following it. And even to the two of us, like there's something about the Burke trial as monumental as it is, that feels kind of anticlimactic. Like a lot of the allegations have already been out there for a couple of years, several years at this point, right. Um, from the initial indictment and all the court records and everything, the coverage of that. So and if you followed city politics and Burke for a while, you knew the way he operated for some time. And what we decided was like a lot of what was missing, and this is no disrespect to the people covering the trial who are doing an excellent job, I believe. But overall, what's missing in, in our, our journalism core here in Chicago is like, where's the sense of character? Where's the sense of color? I mean, Ed Burke is a classic figure. I mean, whether he is going to end up guilty or not, I suspect he probably will, but who knows? I mean, I'm not in the courthouse every day. Um, Whether he's literally guilty or not in the courtroom, like just where did Ed Burke come from? What kind of a creature is he? What's the story? I mean, you know, he, his dad was an alderman. And back when there, when the 14th ward was like, back of the yards uh i mean almost um almost like not quite canaryville but like that ward kept moving further and further southwest as as uh you know burke was was essentially like politically fleeing from black and brown people (laughs) and until he could go no further and still stay in the city and and there's a fascinating story this is not a defense of Ed Burke, Ben, but there's a fascinating story about the, the colorful character and how he fits with the Chicago of his lifetime that I think we're really missing as we're dwelling on all the, the facts about, did you bring in the tuna and stuff, you know? Uh, yeah, that's a good riff, Bick, but I have to say, I love the tuna stuff. I love the tuna oh, it's, stuff. It's, it's great. So, it's Danny great. Danny setting up Burke. I, 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 with you, I thought you were going to go in this area. Back in the day, see, I always trash baby boomer journalist Mick knows. He always defends him, yeah, but I trash him. To me, uh, Chicago journalism has been getting better uh, with each succeeding generation, in my humble opinion. So uh, I just, that's just my belief. But one thing they had back in the day, they had columnists uh, who would go out and do scene setters 
And that's gone. I mean, they're never going to pay a guy to do that. But like good writers would craft like a fable or a story or a parable. uh, And they would capture that character. It was a guy. That's right. Royko. These are names that nobody knows anymore, except for maybe older uh, Gen Xers. Uh, And uh, so that that dimension of writing is gone in in journalism. And it's, it's a shame. In my humble opinion. All right, Mick, we're almost out of time. Uh, there's a clock ticking here. Uh, so I'm going to give you a really quick question, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to watch Mick Dumkey duck and dodge. This is going to be fun. So Mick Dumkey, I would say that the Bulls are his beloved team, too. Uh, and uh, so right now the Bulls are having a resurgence. So they've won two in a row. I'm laughing as I say <laughs> that. That qualifies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and part of the reason is that, uh, well, it's coincidental or not. Zach Levine's been out for those two games. Are the Chicago Bulls better off without Zach Levine? No ducking and dodging. Yes. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) And this call is about to end. I got to end it. Yes. We'll have further discussion on this at a future show. Thank you, Mick Dumkey. Thank you, producer Chris. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love. And as always, if you missed any previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, columns, or uh, like newsletter articles from Ben Jarofsky, head to chicagoreader.com. You can find all that. You can find out how to get signed up for the newsletter and so much more. But hey, if you're just one of those millennials who just hang out on Instagram and TikTok, you can find Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show. And don't forget, please like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.